What is good, Bible Stormers? Welcome back to the latest episode of the Bible Storming Podcast. We're actually on schedule, I think, <laughs> uh, barely, but we're hanging on and doing it. If you're listening to this in real time, you know that the Alabama Crimson Tide are the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament. And as of right now, we're looking pretty good. We haven't lost yet. Uh, I probably will regret putting this in here because chances are, even though we are, you know, by far the best team in the country, obviously, we most likely will lose. It's just the <laughs> the percentages. But hey, got to boast while we can, right? So roll tide, say a prayer for us real quick here in the NCAA tournament, and hopefully we'll pull it out. Alabama's not been a basketball school really ever. So <laughs> it's nice to be able to cheer for a sport other than football for the first time in a long time. So in this episode, we're going to dive in and, and the plan is to finish out what has been a little mini series on honor and shame culture dynamics in our own culture, but then also especially in ancient Middle Eastern cultures, which includes the culture of the Bible. Or we should say cultures of the Bible because the Bible's writing and receiving spans over several different cultures. But for the most part, those cultures were heavily influenced by an honor and shame dynamic. If you have no idea what we're talking about, go back and listen <laughs> to some of the older episodes, should be the last two or three episodes that we've covered this, and you'll, you'll get caught up on where we've been going and where we're at today. Today is kind of, kind of where the other episodes have been leading toward, because in this episode, we're unpacking some of the really big implications of an honor and shame cultural dynamic dominating the surroundings of Jesus when he was here on earth. And really, I have three in mind that I'm, I'm going to try to cover in as short a time as possible, because I also have rice waiting on me that is currently cooking. And if I talk for too long, it's going to burn. So <laughs> we're going to try to get that done before friends get here. We're uh, hosting tonight some friends. So I'm going to go as quick as possible and hopefully get some honor and shame talk out of the way before uh, my friends walk in and interrupt the podcast. So... <laughs> Let's start by talking about something that I think this may be the most important implication. So if I run out of time, at least we talked about the most important, right? Here's the thing. Unless we intentionally, very intentionally, get out of the way of this cultural dynamic, unless we very intentionally escape our Western worldview, it cannot help but influence the way that we see the cross, you know, I think we tend to think of the cross in in this way, and really just justification and atonement in this way. I sinned, so I'm guilty, and my record needs to be cleaned. It needs to be cleared, right? So Jesus, he died, and he washed away my sins, and now everything's okay. It's a very legal view, legalistic view of the cross event. And, and as, as you're probably seeing, if you've been following along, it's very Western. It's very individualistic. It's very me-centered. <laughs> it's very legal. And that doesn't mean that it's wrong because it's, I think, I think everything that I just said is actually true. If you read it in the Bible, it, you know, it seems like it's there. So it doesn't mean that that way of viewing it is wrong, but <laughs> it's kind of like eating only grilled chicken ever, right? So I love grilled chicken. I could literally eat it for every meal, but even I couldn't eat it as my only food at every meal. Because grilled chicken is great, but if it's all that you eat, 
you're probably going to get sick of it and you're definitely going to be a bit malnourished, even though grilled chicken is incredibly healthy. And I think this is, this is kind of like that, where if that's the only way we view the cross, even though it's true, the cross was a legal clearing of my sins. But if that's the only way that I view the cross, then I'm missing some of, if not the most important aspects of what happened on that event. And this is so important because the cross is the moment, it is the the most fundamental place where our new identity is formed as Christians. Galatians 2.20, right? If you're like me, you sang it growing up and in every worship service, Sunday p.m. I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, right? The old King James. Um, that's how we memorized it growing up, was just singing it. But like Paul says, at the cross, at the cross, we lost our old identity and we took on a new one. Jesus now is living in us. It's not Daniel anymore. It's not whoever you are anymore. Put your name in there, you most dear Bible stormer. (laughs) It's not you anymore, right? It's Jesus who is living in you. So this is so important because that moment, that place where Jesus was crucified and where we go back and are crucified with him is where our new identity is formed. One of the most important things about who we are, our identity is contingent on this event. So if we get it wrong, we miss a lot of things. We're going to see the world wrongly. And here's the thing, that that event, that, that cross event is certainly not less than a judicial act. It definitely is a judicial act, but it's also much more than only that. It's much more than only judicial because as sinners, we are absolutely guilty before God. Our consciences should be convicted of that fact. Individualistically, we should be convicted of that fact. We have all sinned. We have all robbed God of his honor. That's really what sin is at its core. It's robbing God of his honor in such a way that we are not living in the way that we were designed to live. We've all done that, right? You've done that. I've done that. I've done that today. You've done that today, most likely. (laughs) We've all done that. We are legally guilty. And, And really, we have dishonored God. I want to. I want to make a note of that too, because uh, you probably heard that language, right? Romans three twenty three. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, of the honor of God. So we've all done that. And when you when you put it into a context in which Paul is writing, which is a context in which dishonoring someone is incredibly important and incredibly distasteful and insulting um, and condemning. And that makes that even more, uh, I think, it make, for me at least, it makes it hit even more heavily when, we, when, it, when Paul tells us that we've fallen short of the honor of God, of the glory of God. We've dishonored God. We've shamed him by how we've lived our lives. That's, that's incredibly serious <laughs> because we're honoring him of, or we're robbing him of the honor that he so fundamentally deserves. And that means that our problem is not only an objective legal reality. It is that, but it's also personal and relational because when I sin, I personally rob God of the honor he deserves. That's personal. It's not just judicial. If for us, if it's only about the judicial guilt, then we may tend to slip into a mindset that says it's all about getting clean. It's all about doing the right thing myself and not incurring any guilt onto myself. 
I think that's the mindset a lot of Christians have tended to slip into in our culture. It's all about being clean for myself. So I do the right things. I check the right boxes just to make myself clean before God. But that that legalism, that, that focus only on a to-do list feels safe, right? It feels like I know exactly what I need to do not to burn forever. <laughs> you know, like that that seems like a worthy goal. I don't want to, I don't want to burn forever. <laughs> so it feels safe because it feels like I'm in control of this. As long as I don't break these laws, then I'm safe. And like I said, there's there's some truth in that. There are laws in Christianity, obviously. And there's there is judicial guilt of which uh, we have all incurred. But that mindset, if that's my only mindset, like only eating grilled chicken, it misses the fact that our legal transgression has brought shame on all of us and disconnected us from God and each other. It's more than only legal and judicial. It's personal and relational. My relationships are broken. The brokenness that is in all of my relationships, even my best ones, are broken to some extent. And that's because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, the honor of God. Because sin messes things up. <laughs> and that kind of brings us, to, honestly, to the, uh, the second implication that I really wanted to, to discuss with you. Because our society is so individualistic, we tend to, to buck at any notion that our sin as a human race could or should have any impact on me. Because that's not fair. I haven't done anything. I shouldn't have to pay for a sin that you've committed. That's not fair. Why should I bear the penalty for someone else's sin? But that's not how the Bible actually paints the picture of sin. Not that we're all legally guilty of sin, but like we've been talking about, there's actually more to it than that. And if we focus only on that, then we miss some things, including this. So in Romans 5, 12 through 19, uh, part of an amazing section, and this section is amazing. I'm not going to read the whole thing because, like I said, you know, we're in a hurry. So, so I'm just going to read snippets of it. I want you to see the emphasis that Paul places here on this concept. He says, sin came into the world through one man, thanks Adam, <laughs> and death through sin. So there's the one man, death is entered in. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Paul continues later, he says, many died through one man's trespass. Then he says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Then he says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Then he says, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but it's it's weird that one guy sinned and we all have to pay for it to some extent. But that's my culture. That discomfort is a symptom of my culture providing me with a lens through which I view this passage. Because think about it in their context. For them, being a sinner means we are collectively embedded as members of a race who together stand before God ashamed. Because as a group, we have robbed God of the honor due his name. Together, we have done that. Yeah, we, we are absolutely individually guilty before him. But we also have corporately dishonored him. As a human race, we have dishonored our friend, our father, our creator, our lover, our Lord, our life. We've, we've dishonored him. But that's not where our story ends. <laughs> Praise God. Because our third implication has something to do 
with, once again, that cross event, what happened there. Because in many ways, we can understand Jesus's entire ministry through the lens of honor and shame. You know, all those pesky questions <laughs> that the Pharisees asked him in front of everyone. You know, you probably always had an intuition of this, but just to give you a little bit more evidence, <laughs> they weren't actually looking for truth in those questions. In that culture, public questions, like the ones that the Pharisees asked, they were never for information. <laughs> they weren't looking for information from Jesus. Public questions were about who was going to win. They were contests. And the audience decided the winner. If, if, if the person A silenced their opponent, then they gained honor and the other person lost honor, right? So if you're in this competition and you are the one who silences your opponent, you gain honor in the eyes of the, the people who are watching and your opponent loses honor. And that's why Nicodemus came to Jesus in private because that's why he could, or because he, he actually wanted an answer to his question. And that's why Jesus frequently asked Jesus for answers privately because they, they wanted answers to their questions. But in Matthew 22, verse 46, it tells us that no one from that day dared to ask him any more questions. For us, we might insert public questions because that's really what it's talking about. By this point in his ministry, Jesus had struck a knockout blow against those who were asking those public questions, those engaging in those public contests for honor. He won. It was over. And so he had to die. After all, I mean, honor is at stake here. And remember how seriously they take honor and shame. Yeah, they didn't kill him for going around preaching, love one another. <laughs> they killed him because he was taking chunks out of their honor, a limited resource, right? That's why they killed him. They were envious. He was winning. So he, he had to die. But he, he didn't just have to die. There's a reason why they didn't just hire an assassin to stick a knife in his back in some dark alley. That would make him a martyr. And they can't have that. <laughs> they need him humiliated. They need him disgraced. They need him shamed. They need him executed as a criminal. And so they took him to the most public and shameful place imaginable. They took him to the cross. Notice in Matthew 27, 28 through 30, the language of honor and shame at play here says that they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. There's some honor and some dishonor mixed together, at least on the surface. And they twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took a reed and they struck him on the head. Notice how the dynamics of honor and shame are playing out here where really the, the elements of honor are actually elements of dishonor. And that's the whole point of mocking someone, taking elements of honor and turning them into dishonor. That's what they do here. You name a shameful thing, and, and Jesus probably experienced it in this moment. And because of this need for them to regain their honor, they made sure that all of it happened as publicly as possible. And that's why Hebrews 12 and verse 2 tells us that Jesus endured the cross, and all the while he was despising the shame in the cross. Jesus bore our shame as well as our guilt. 
you know, if he had been stabbed in an alley, he could have atoned for our guilt, but not for our shame. Because on the cross, Jesus was publicly dishonored to cover for us. He dies, disgraced, they win. But the thing about Jesus, right, is that he has this knack for turning everything on its head. Throughout his ministry, uh, he'd been talking about what we might call the great reversal in, in passages like Matthew 20 and verse 16. The last will be first and the first last. Well, that doesn't make any sense, but Jesus does that a lot. Just when you think you haven't figured out, he turns everything on its head. And what happens next in his story does just that. Yeah, he, he gets up from the grave and all of that, right? Obviously, that's the most important thing that happens here. But underneath the surface, something much more abstract is happening. Something almost as significant as the event itself. Speaking of the cross event in, in Colossians 2 verse 15, Paul says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the one who was so profoundly disgraced in the whole crucifixion narrative actually ends up shaming the shamers. He put them to an open shame. He won because he got it from the grave. He turned all of it on its head because when God raised him up, he declared for everyone to see that that person whom they had treated so shamefully was actually the son of God. Hebrews 2 verse 9 says that he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that the grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So not only did he get up from the grave, but he also was raised all the way up to God's right hand. And there he is today, right? Way up there at God's right hand, wearing that crown of glory and honor on his thorn-scarred forehead. And he did it for you and for me, not only for our sins, but for our shame. The shame that you feel that disconnects you from the people around you. You know, I'm, I'm ashamed of this part of me. I'm ashamed of that part of my body. I'm ashamed of that part of my personality. That shame, the shame that disconnects you from God. The shame that says, I'm never good enough, which is true, right? I'm never good enough to be here, to be in God's presence. It's true. <laughs> but that shame, Jesus took it on himself, nailed it to his cross. In that moment, his great reversal took hold in a huge, ultimate universal sense because now the only glory remaining for us in the world is in our shame. Look at Philippians 3 verse 19 where Paul spoke of people who glory in their shame. And don't miss that Paul wrote those words from prison, an incredibly shameful position. But, but in Jesus's upside down reality, Paul has a different spin on things. Because earlier in Philippians, in chapter 1 verse 20, he says that he's eagerly expecting and hoping that he will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. He wanted to honor Christ in his body, even in the most shameful of circumstances, because what God does is he takes those shameful circumstances and he turns them out for his honor, his glory. That's why Paul could say that he, was, he wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Romans 1.16. That's weird that he, he would even think of being ashamed of the gospel, right? But, but the gospel message should have been shameful. Jesus was mocked. He was scourged. He, he was made to look like a fool. 
at least on the surface. But in the great reversal, it's actually the exact opposite. Now, Romans 2 verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. <laughs> if we seek glory, honor, immortality with God, we get eternal life. Not because we've earned it, because we're so legally clear before God, we're, we're innocent. No, we are declared innocent because of Jesus. But also, we don't have any shame. We're declared honorable before the one to whom all honor is due. We get included in that because of Jesus. Praise God. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Let's go out and live like people whose shame has been taken away by Jesus himself, who took it on himself in a culture where shame was the number one taboo thing. He's dishonored for us. And in doing that, he makes it to where we don't have to feel shame in our relationships with each other, with God. We can live abundantly. We can live relationally. We can live personally. Because Jesus did. Amen. Until next time, keep on Bible storming. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.